0: To help us uh, generate bodhicitta and familiarize ourselves with it is to think about love and compassion and bodhicitta. Uh anytime we see a sentient being. So it's summertime now, there are lots of sentient beings around. So, all sorts of little bugs in the buildings and insects outside, tons of birds, so many different kinds of birds. And also some forest animals, as well as the people. So to really think whenever we see uh, the turkey mom with her 15 kids running after her, uh, to see how they're trapped in samsara, by karma and afflictions, and generate the bodhicitta and make a karma connection with them from our side by generating the wish to be able to lead them on the path in the future lives. And so if we practice like this every time we see a different sentient being, it really uh, changes our mind and our attitude. And especially when we do this uh, regarding human beings, because we tend to have far more opinions and judgments about human beings than we do about our animal relatives. And so this reminds us all the time of the purpose of our life, how we want to be with others. So it's a very uh, good practice to do on a daily basis. So let's make it to our motivation for sharing the teachings this evening. So this afternoon, when I was starting to go for a walk in the forest, I saw one of our mama turkeys. We have a few around here now with different numbers of kids. Um, Yeah, and the the kids are different sizes. We have preschool, we have uh, (laughs) second grade, we have some that are becoming middle school students. Yeah, so I saw those, and then I was walking on the path. There was another bird. I didn't see it very carefully. There must have been two of them, because I heard fluttering on both sides of the path. And then I kept walking on the path, and then all of a sudden, this huge, huge black thing came bursting out of the bit, the shrubs, galloping the opposite way on the path than I was, you know, or the same way that I was going, but he was in front of me. And I thought, you know, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's not Superman, you know, and it's not a bear. It was a moose with racks. He's starting to grow them. Huge moose, you know. So I thought, oh, you know, Yamantaka. <laughs> but he was bounding down that path. <laughs> yeah. So to think, you know, our lives are to lead all those sentient beings to awakening, not omitting even one, you know? So can you imagine sitting with the Buddha sometime in a pure land and Buddha's going to look at us and go, I remember when you were a big moose. (laughs) Yeah. Or when you were a wasp. Or, you know, who knows? All these different uh, forms. And if that doesn't make you think about emptiness, what will? You know, the fact that uh, the people are so different from one life to the next that the body discontinues you the mind continues but you get a different set of mental aggregates you know so what is there that is permanent that carries the karma across mm. I'm sure Shanti Deva had something to say about that for the last week. Uh, I'd really check up on that because it feels like there's got to be something there that doesn't, you know, that's stable in order to carry the karmic seeds. Yeah. Okay. So, speaking of karma, we're on chapter 10, karma and its effects. And, you know, we talk about karma and its effects a lot in the context of, uh, you know, the preparatory practices, which actually aren't so preparatory. They're actually quite profound. But, uh, you know, it comes, sometimes it comes under... The uh, the initial beings practice in um, in three principal aspects of the path. It comes under uh, renunciation, the middle scope practice, and we need to have a really robust understanding of karma and its effects uh, to meditate on emptiness. Yeah, it's it's quite important to to have this as something that we really uh, believe in, in our lives, and live according to it. Otherwise, there's great danger when we meditate on emptiness, that we go to the extreme of nihilism and say that karma and its effects doesn't exist, and then come to the conclusion that therefore, uh, you know, This whole thing of there's no good, there's no bad, whatever I do, there's no results from it except maybe a few results in the next five minutes. Uh, And that deprecation of conventional causality is really dangerous. Yeah. So, this uh, the chapter on karma and its effects, and karma is one kind of causality you know, is quite important, not only for where we're at now, but also as preparation for meditating on emptiness, also as preparation for meditating on bodhicitta, you know, to be able to see sentient beings as karmic bubbles, as, you know, people who aren't uh, totally in control of themselves just as we aren't totally in control of ourselves either. And how we're all pushed by afflictions and karma. And understanding that helps to create uh, a lot of acceptance for others and not so much judgment. Yeah, because we realize, you know, it's not like their wisdom is always turned on. Uh, Is our wisdom always turned on? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. So, same thing with them. Okay. So, chapter 10. Having found a precious human life, we now have a choice. Will we create the causes for suffering or will we create the causes for happiness? So, this is very important, you know, once we understand that our life has... Is some meaning, some purpose, and it's rare to attain, then we better figure out what to do with it. Yeah? And since we all want happiness, then what's the cause of happiness? So we can create it. What's the cause of misery? So we can avoid it. Yeah? So... Quite important, you know, and if we don't think about these things, then we just basically live our life on automatic. You know, whatever thought pops into the mind, we follow that thought. Yeah, I was reading uh, today, oh, because uh, that one man from Scotland asked us to make a prayer for uh, an inmate who was... um, who was put to, you know, executed uh, two days ago. And so I, I looked up the guy's case, and he was 18 years old. Yeah, he was 18 and seven months. If he had been born eight months earlier or done the crime eight months earlier, he would not have been put on death row. Because in I think it was like two thousand four or two thousand and five around then, before they could sentence juveniles to death, but then there was a case, and I actually knew the guy who whose case it was uh chris roper and and he he uh anyway, the Supreme Court said you can't put people under eighteen uh you know, for the death penalty, because their brain is still evolving and it's not fully formed, so we shouldn't, you know, execute them for making a mistake. And also, because their brain isn't fully formed, uh, there's a greater chance for rehabilitation. Anyway, this young man completely missed out on it. And uh, he, the situation it was he was robbing an he was eighteen, he was robbing an old man who was eighty two, wanted to steal his truck or steal something, and he had a gun and he pulled it out to intimidate the the old man. But the old man reached for it, and so he wanted to shoot it in the air to scare the guy, the old man off, but instead when he pulled the trigger it went right through the guy's head and killed him yeah and so you know that i mean how long does it take for something like that to happen and then the whole trajectory of your life is different you know a slip up for a small period of time the whole rest of the life is different so um yeah so they put him to death and he uh you know came of course to, to realize uh, you know a lot of things and regretted sincerely what he had done but the uh they wouldn't grant him clemency or or parole or anything or life imprisonment um, yeah so we see, you know, he was young, He and when he, he looked back on his crime, he said, there was an old man who was terrified, and a kid who was terrified. And they both wound up suffering. So, you know, there's previous life karma involved. There's also present life affliction involved, yeah. And, uh, you know, the course of both of their lives were changed and, you know, the course of their future lives were changed too. So it's, it's something, you know, to, to be aware of, to be careful about. One of the other inmates that um, I worked with for a really long time, he uh, and he wrote an article it's on the website, but he uh, came up with this thing because he was in he got arrested when he was young. He was a big drug dealer in uh, Southern California, but big and had several cars and warehouses full of stuff anyway. He was going to do one last run and then leave the country. Well, they busted him. And so he got 20 years. And in the, you know, that time he had plenty of time to reflect on what was going on and how he wound up there. And he came up with the um the the expression suds, let's see if I can remember it, seemingly unimportant decisions. Yeah? Seemingly unimportant decisions. Suds. And he started looking at his life, and you know, how did I get to the point where I was busted? And how did, you know, where was I before that? How did I get there? How did I get there? And he traced it back, you know, through decisions that he had made uh, even when he was a young kid and seeing how one decision led to another, led to another, led to another. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was quite profound, I think, for him to do that and really see the causality and how much um, making small decisions that were just impetuous, that were not well thought out, uh, drove his whole life um, into a 20-year prison sentence. Last year when we were at the uh, ordination in Taiwan, for some reason, I don't know why, but I started contemplating how come I wound up here, you know, being part of the bhikshuni sangha, giving an ordination and being with this most amazing group of people. I mean, to be in a place with that many people practicing virtue and so much intensity and sincerity on taking the precepts. And I started thinking, how did I get here? You know, when I was a little kid, you know, my parents didn't tell me, well, one day you'll find yourself at a Taiwanese temple where they all speak Chinese and you'll be helping to give an ordination. I, huh? What? But I started to look and there were so many of these little suds in my life that Totally changed my life. And you know what a big one was? When I was in Seattle in 1989, um, one woman from Thailand was driving me to the speaking engagements. And she said, I know some Chinese nuns in Kirkland. I want to take you to meet them. You know, it's like I said, sure, I love meeting people. So? So? I met Venerable Gendi and Venerable Mingja. And how much my life has changed and how much your lives have changed because that lady took me to meet them. And from there, you know, so many different things happened. Yeah? So that and then also uh, the decision I had... Uh, to go to um, to Taiwan in 1986. Yeah, I had asked my teacher what to do. He said, and he never did this, at least not with me, he said, go to Manj- Manjitikila, this is the Tibetan place in Delhi, and go see this one lama, who has a name I can't even remember, and ask him for a mo about, because I was wondering, shall I go back to France, which I really wanted to do and continue studying with Kenza Rinpoche, or should I go to Taiwan and take Bhikshuni ordination? You know? And she said, go ask this guy for a mom." Okay, I went, I asked. He said, they both look good, you can decide. <laughs> yeah? So then... I had to decide which was I going to do, you know. I wanted to go back and study with Kenzaburō Rinpoche, but I knew if I did, I would. It would be ex- extremely difficult to ever get to Taiwan and take Bhikshuni ordination, you know, because I, I was totally broke. I had no money. It would be very difficult to get there, you know, in the future. And so I thought, okay, I'll go there now. And then I'll go back to France, because I had a return ticket. Huh? Everything changed because of that decision. Yeah? So, you know, the point we're getting at is we're talking about karma. And in one way, karma sounds so gross, you know, when we... Come to the point where we start talking about the 10 paths of non virtue and the 10 paths of virtue. Everything sounds very uh, planned out and meticulously set forth. But actually, karma is just these little suds, you know, seemingly unimportant decisions that we make in our life that have a very profound impact on our life, that we don't even see at the time we made that decision and did that action. Yeah? So this is, you know, when we talk about being aware and really practicing karma and its effects, Wow, the level of awareness is quite necessary that is quite profound, you know, to have that level of awareness to to make good decisions and not to swallow whatever thought pops in the mind. Okay. If we decide to do the latter, which is creating the causes for happiness, the most urgent thing to do is abandon the ten non-virtues and engage in the ten virtues to observe karma and its effects. Doing so will bring happiness in this life and fortunate rebirths in future lives and will establish the foundation of liberation and full awakening. Wow. A lot of big results from just getting your act together on a day-to-day basis, because that's what observing karma's effects is. I mean, I translated it once as "stop being a jerk," you know, and get your act together, and that's that's basically what it's about. Mm-hmm. Since karma and its effects is a very obscure topic, remember when we studied evident, slightly obscure, and very obscure topics? Traditional Lamrim texts speak of refuge at this point, because knowing the qualities of the three jewels generates faith in the teachings. This, in turn, helps people to accept the teachings on karma. Okay, that's the typical reasoning for the usual structure of the Lamrim, Rim. Because we just finished with death and the lower realms, and usually they would teach rebirth to an audience that was already Buddhist. Yeah, that already, uh, I mean, they would teach refuge. So, and this is to an audience that was already Buddhist, okay. But yeah many people nowadays find the qualities of the three jewels to be subtle and difficult to understand and the cause and effect approach of teaching some Karma to be practical. Yeah for this reason we will discuss karma and its effects now and the qualities of the three jewels when we discuss true paths and true cessations because true paths and true cessations, that's the Dharma jewel. Okay? So I remember before, you know, making this decision to reorder the, you know, the topics here, there was the precedent, you know, in, in three principal aspects of the path, to put it, uh, you know, earlier. And And then I remember talking to you about it and asking you about your experience with Westerners and we both had the same experience which is uh you know talking about the buddha's supernatural powers and the buddha's you know 27 enlightened activities and all this you know this was a bit too much for for Westerners especially those with a scientific background you know it was was, it didn't make much sense to them. But we both found that uh, people wanted to hear about karma. Yeah, because karma was very practical. What causes happiness? What causes suffering? Okay, so that clinched the decision (laughs) and I think it's a good one too. I think it's very helpful. Okay, there are many types of causality, biological, chemical, psychological, and so forth, of which the law of karma and its effects is one. Okay, so this is important, you know, that there are many, many types of causality. And in the Pali Dharma, Pali Abhidharma, the text listen, uh, lists some of the other kinds of causality. I don't know if it gives it the titles chemical and biological and physics and neuropath- you know neurology and things like that because I don't think a lot of those words existed at that time. Um, but there was the idea that there's, you know, some different systems of causality and some of them involved the physical world that we were in. So this is important because sometimes the way um, some people tend to present karma, it makes it sound like everything is due to karma, okay? That an earthquake is due to karma, the bad weather is due to karma, the good weather is due to karma, Uh, you know, the, the eclipse of the sun is due to karma... You know, some people kind of present it as if everything, even in the natural world, is all due to karma. And that's not exactly it, okay? In fact, it's it's kind of far from it. And we'll have a chapter later on, I forget which chapter, uh, where it might be, I think, in Volume 3, um where His Holiness talks about the effects of karma on the environment, yeah? But he's very clear that, you know, there's biological, chemical, physical, you know, all these different kinds of systems, and that a lot of things happen because of the causality in those systems, not because of human beings' karma, yeah? But he does say that our karma... Uh, did make some influence at, have some influence at the time the universe was being created. Okay, but we'll get into that when we get to that chapter in the next volume. okay. Um, yeah. Okay, so there's many types of causality. Karma literally means action and refers to sentient beings intentional, physical, verbal, and mental actions. Our actions matter. They not only influence others in this life, but also result in our own experiences in this and future lives. The results of our actions depend on our intentions. In the actions done with a virtuous intention, in that actions done with a virtuous intention, bring happy results and those motivated by non-virtuous intentions bring unpleasant results those are results in the long time in the long term yeah sometimes in the short term it can be different human intelligence makes us particularly qualified to discriminate between constructive and destructive beneficial and harm- harmful what to practice and what to abandon Animals do not have such discriminative wisdom. As human beings, simply surviving or seeking a healthy, happy life is not making full use of our potential. We must look deeper and ask, how did this human being, me, come into existence? How can I make my life meaningful? and what happens after I die. This leads us to investigate causality, both the external systems of cause and effect detailed in science, and the internal system of cause and effect, the laws of karma and its effects. These two systems are harmonious, and I do not find any contradiction between the laws of nature Scientific findings on uh, Darwinian evolution and the law of karma and its effects. Okay, so that's had uh, quite a powerful impact, you know, when he meets with scientists. And I think for many people, the fact that Buddhists are quite happy to meet with scientists and agree with them on many things uh, really eases the path into religion, because typically in the West, science and religion are, you know, they're either like this or they're like this, okay? So the law of karma and its effects. So it's helpful to review the three characteristics of all systems of causality mentioned in chapter Seven. Chapter 7, that was a ways back. (laughs) Okay. It's interesting that these three come here because I've been working on volume 7 in the book, which is about emptiness, and these three get mentioned a lot in that volume also. Okay. So the whole thing of causality is very fundamental to how we live our life and how things exist, that they exist dependent on factors that are not them. Okay, so these three come from a sangha. So the first one is, Effects arise from causes and cannot arise without causes. Yeah, it sounds quite reasonable, but sometimes we think and we meet people Let's say, it just happened out of nowhere. There was no cause for it. Yeah? Or causality is random. You know, why certain things happen? It's random. Yeah? Okay, so effects arise from causes, and they cannot arise without causes. So nothing appears out of nowhere. Nothing appears without a cause, okay? But, 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 we see, we see magic, and we see miracles. Didn't those things happen without causes? No, they had causes. We just call them magic and miracles because we don't know what those causes are. But they definitely have causes, yeah? Yeah. How can you assert that something happens without a cause? What would make it happen if there weren't some causal energy there behind it? A tree grows from a seed and cannot grow without a seed. Okay, So this sounds like so simple, but when you really think about it, you know... How everything depends on causes, depends on conditions. And just for one single event, there's this incredible multitude of causes and conditions that are going on to make one even simple thing happen. Yeah? Like there was pancakes for breakfast the other day. Yeah? It just looks like, okay... You take a batch of pancake mix, mix some water in, turn on the frying pan, make it finished. Okay, but if you really look, what are all the causes of the frying pan? And you have to go back into the mines and the miners who drew the metal ore out of the earth and how the earth was created, that there were metal ores there to start with. You have to go back to the the causes of the wheat. Yeah, the causes of, you know, the company who made it. And, you know, when you really think about it, I, I mean, it's too much for our mind to grok. There's so many causes and conditions. And the thing is, if w- even one small condition changed, the whole f- thing would not be the same. In some cases, it might be similar, but it would still be different. But in other cases, even you miss a small thing, the whole thing is off. Yeah. Like that guy who got executed. What if the lights, the electricity went off at that time? Small thing. Probably doesn't happen very often in a prison. But it would change the whole dynamic of everything. Yeah? Anyway, you know, it's really something to to think about how complex causality is. Okay. Um, So, two, the causes are impermanent because the arising of of an effect Necessitates the cessation of the cause. The seed ceases and changes into a sprout and then a tree. Okay. So this is important too. Okay. The result depends on the cause, but for the result to come into being, the cause has to cease. Okay. For, for, so for arising to happen, for something to arise, something else has to cease. Yeah. So it's kind of how arising and ceasing go together, and how ceasing brings arising. Uh-huh. And uh, how sometimes this is uh, uh, the one that will destroy our mentality of we want our if we want to eat our cake and have it too. Okay because the cause has to cease for the result to come. So for the result of having cake in your tummy, the cake outside your tummy has to cease. There's no way to have both of them at the same time. But think of how often in our life we don't want the cause to cease. We want the effect to magically appear, yeah? And how much we uh, pray, because that's what prayer often is based on, you know, for things to magically appear, either without a cause or without the cause having to cease. Or, the third point, yeah, without the cause being a concordant cause. So the third point is, effects must be concordant with their causes, and causes must be concordant with their effects. Only a specific cause can produce a specific result. Pine trees grow from pine needles, not from daisy seeds. Pine seeds, not pine needles. Huh? They don't grow from pine needles. Pine needles, from pine seeds, yeah, sorry, from pine seeds. I have pine needles all over me. (laughs) So pine trees go from pine seeds, not from daisy seeds. Furthermore, one cause alone cannot produce an effect. Cooperative conditions are needed. The seed grows into a tree only when there is sufficient water, fertilizer, and heat you take one of those away, or you just change one of those a little bit differently, and you're not going to, the seed is not going to sprout. Okay, and if the seed doesn't sprout, then it may affect your mood, which may affect an action you do, and you know the whole thing of, you know, the guy winds up kicking his dog. So we don't have dogs. Um, okay, but to, to really think about this and, you know, is my mind really in tune? Intellectually, yes, but in my life, yeah, we can see the specific causes of many external things. However, if we search for the causes of those causes and the causes of those causes, Going back to the origin of this universe, we will not be able to pinpoint precisely each and every cause and condition. Although the details of all the causes of the Big Bang are too vast and complex for us to understand, we would not feel right saying that the universe arose without causes. So even though all the causes and conditions are too too numerous for us to really get some feeling for it doesn't feel comfortable to say well it just kind of happened out of nowhere yeah there was a black hole which i don't really, which we don't really know what it is except it sucks in a lot of light and Then everything went kaboom and, you know, and then somehow uh, out of that kaboom, planet Earth Earth happened, but without a cause. Yeah, and no, things happen with causes. We know that it's development, um, the, the universe's development, follows particular laws of nature, certain systematic ways of growth and decay, even though we may not be able to discern each unique cause and condition. So just because we can't understand something thoroughly, don't throw it out the window and say it doesn't exist. Similarly, on the internal level of sentient beings' experiences of happiness and suffering, Um, uh, Similarly, on the internal level, sentient beings' experiences of happiness and suffering arise from preceding causes and conditions. Secular society usually traces these to genetic or environmental factors and does not consider the law of karma and its effects. Bringing in the ethical dimension of our mental intentions gives us a fuller picture of both sentient beings' experiences and the environment they inhabit. Okay? So people usually don't think about ethical uh, factors, you know, in terms of those uh, causing things in their life. Uh, But that, again, doesn't mean that they aren't the causes. But some people do think of ethical... Uh, have ethical considerations when they think of different events in their life however some people the way they think of those ethical or mental con- uh, considerations is erroneous <laughs> you know like there was I don't know if it's still happening now but for a while there's a really big push of you know if you have cancer, it's because you, you're really angry and your anger costs your cancer. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of a popular and then new age, kind of new medicine view of things. And can somebody prove that? Yeah. And is that really, first, is it true? I don't think so. You know, that anger is the cause of cancer. It may be something that plays a small part in it, but I don't think it's the principal cause. Second of all, is that beneficial to say to somebody who has cancer? Does that help that person that you made up a causality and present it to them? I don't think that helps a person who is sick. Some people, you know, and they, they will think of causes. That, like, sickness is a punishment from God, yeah. So either maybe you, were, you broke some commandments, so that involves something ethical, or maybe it was god's will which basically means i don't know because no you know if you ask people who believe in god's will they they nobody can really explain it it's just god willed it so you just accept it yeah but Uh, You know, there's some other plan involved that we don't know about is the underlying thing. But, again, you know, is that really the cause? And, uh, you know, is that, again, helpful to say to somebody, you know, uh, you have a terminal illness, um, you know, because, uh, you know, you gambled too much, you did something unethical, or you have a terminal illness because God willed it, you know, God wanted you to die. Yeah, so we also have to think of, you know, not only what, if something is true or not, but is it something beneficial? Remember how Nagarjuna defined truth? Do you remember this from Precious Garland? He said that for something to be true, it doesn't just have to be factually correct. It has to be kind. If the kindness is missing, even though it's factually correct. It's not Nagarjuna's idea of what truth is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in Buddhism, we do sometimes relate happiness and suffering to our actions. But the way we relate it to our actions, I think uh, is in a way that's very beneficial for the mind. Okay, so if we get sick, yeah, if you know, if we don't say Buddha is punishing us, we don't say, Oh, I was this horrible person and I did something wicked and evil, and now it's ripening in this way. We just say, because that has a lot of judgment about us as a person, yeah, we simply say, This is due. to actions that I did in a previous life. Now it's ripening. This cause is getting exhausted. I'm experiencing, you know, if you're sick, some sickness now. It's impermanent in nature, but it also can help my Dharma practice because when I'm sick, I develop more compassion for other living beings I develop more renunciation of samsara. It gives me a chance to meditate on karma. It gives me a chance to meditate on emptiness. Yeah, being sick makes me humble. You know, all my arrogance kind of, you know, fades away. So we, we see in our way of practicing by switching the way we think we can make the sickness into something beneficial for our practice. Okay? So we don't leave ourselves or other people left with, this is a punishment or you did something really evil because you're a horrible person, because that's not it.
1: I wonder, though, people will connect the dots. If we say this sickness is due to causes, I or whoever's experiencing it, have created in previous lives, mm-hmm. people will connect the dots and say, I created this. And, and in reality, they did, right?
0: They're saying, I created this because I'm a horrible person and I deserve to suffer. And that's not what the Buddha said. That's right. what their ignorant mind is making up. Right. We do not tell them that. In fact, we tell them the opposite. If you think that, that is ignorant misconception because that's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We all created negative karma. That does not mean we are horrible people. It does not mean we are getting punished for anything. Yeah? So... We like to make it, we always like to make everything about us, don't we? You know, and inflate that sense of, "I." something wrong with me. You know, I must have, I must be an awful person to create this karma, to have this suffering. You know, that stuff that we add on to it. Yeah, and I think we have to really always make sure our mind comes back to, you know, chili grows from chili seeds and daisies grow from daisy seeds. And it doesn't mean that chili is evil and horrible and corrupt and deserves to suffer. And it doesn't mean that the daisies are perfect little princesses. It just means that effects are concordant with their causes. And don't add any more self-blaming to that because that's not there. Okay. So that's quite important, you know. And, we ha- and that's why, you know, when we, when we counsel people, we have to be very aware of who we're counseling and what the state of their mind is. Because if they don't have an understanding of karma, or if their, kar- their understanding is not very deep, then we don't talk to them about previous life's actions creating this, because they will so easily misinterpret it. Especially people who grew up with theistic religions as kids, who are very used to blaming themselves for things, okay? So we never say this to people who either are not Buddhist or who are Buddhist but don't understand karma very well, okay? I made the mistake of doing that a few times. Two times. I should have learned from the first time I didn't. And it was awful, it was awful. The results were awful when I tried to explain karma. The first time, I was so ashamed, you know, I'm so, not ashamed, like ashamed, I'm just like so mortified that I could have done this. When I think back, I was speaking to a Jewish group. So of course, when you speak to a Jewish group, What does everybody ask about? It doesn't matter what topic you're talking about. Somebody will ask about the Holocaust. The Holocaust is alive and unfortunately well. And uh, it just came up the other day, you know, in Poland with some things going on. Anyway, and with Israel wanting to annex the, the, you know, the uh, West Bank. You know, why do they want to annex the West Bank? It's such an unfair and stupid thing to do and a harmful thing to do. Why? The effect of the Holocaust. Okay, but I'm getting off topic. Anyway, so I was talking to a Jewish group and somebody said, in Buddhism, how would you explain the Holocaust happening? Open mouth, insert foot bad thing to try and answer that question. What would you say today? What would I say today? I would say, I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't talk anything about karma. I would say, (laughs) you know, I would say there were so many causes and conditions coming together. The way uh, the Treaty of Versailles was made and Put Germany in a very bad position after World War One, you know, and that led to the rise of Hitler and the Nazi regime. So there was that factor. There was, you know, the Jews living in that whole area of the pale who You know, have been undergoing persecution for quite a long time, but their Jews in Germany were actually being um, assimilated, and they never, ever thought anything like this would happen to them. They thought, okay, maybe those Jews in the pale area might have, but in Germany... We're, into, we're assimilated and integrated into the society. We both, is our country, it will never happen. So I would talk about historical analysis. And I would talk about, you know, kind of uh, a psychological thing of, you know, when people are poor, when people feel helpless, then the way they get a feeling of security and power is to subjugate somebody else. I would talk more in those terms. I certainly wouldn't talk about karma. Okay. The second time I did it, okay, you're getting true confessions. Yeah. But I hope this makes an imprint on you so you never do it, okay, that you learn from my mistake. The second time, do you remember when there was the airplane that crashed over Lockerbie? Was it Lockerbie Ireland Scotland? Scotland. so it got shot down over Lockerbie Scotland, and it it had a whole bunch of students from the University of Syracuse I think that was the university they had been there you know, and they were just coming home like a whole group of students so I was asked to give a talk at University of Syracuse. I think that was the university. If it wasn't that, it was whatever university, uh, somebody can look it up, um, was the one, but listen to the Dharma talk at the same time. Uh, But listen, you know, that where the students were. So they said, they were asking, I gave this talk about Buddhism, then they said, how would you account for this happening to our students? You know, our friends, our students, our, you know, how would you, who did nothing, they're totally innocent, how would you account for this? So again, open mouth, insert foot, I started talking about karma. Whoa. Oh, those people got so upset. They were so upset because they misinterpreted it to mean that those people were bad people and had done something wrong and they couldn't imagine their friends having done something so terrible that it would result in their plane getting shot down yeah but we can see i mean even one friend of ours who was you know a top notch buddhist scholar when there was a death in his family very difficult to think of it as related to karma yeah? So, yeah. Syracuse. Syracuse. University of Syracuse. Okay. Yeah. I, I remember sitting in this room, you know. Oh, I may mean, I never, no, I will never do that again. Um, okay, as for how would I explain it today, again, I would talk about political things. I would talk about, you know, uh, how sad it is and, and the tragedy that it is and what we can possibly learn about it. You know, what, like, what are the minds of the, the, the people who shot them down? What were they trying to do? How else could you solve those kind of problems, you know, besides killing other people? I would talk about that kind of thing now. Yeah, I would not talk about karma. Bringing in the ethical dimension of our mental intentions gives us a fuller picture of both sentient beings' experiences and the environment they inhabit. As a natural process that functions whether or not a person believes in it, the law of karma and its effects was not created by the Buddha. Okay? Okay. So it was not created by the Buddha. The Buddha simply described it. And it functions whether or not you believe in it. Okay? So, uh, you know, honey tastes sweet whether or not you believe it's going to taste sweet. And rat poison will kill you whether or not you believe it will kill you. So in the same way, karma operates on people, whether or not they believe in it. People ask that question quite a lot, you know, kind of as if, well, if I don't believe in it, then, you know, I can get, you know, I don't have to worry about these things. Yeah, like the virus. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't pertain to me. It won't happen to me. It's a hoax. I don't believe it. Therefore, I won't get it. That is so rational and logical. Why didn't we think of that? Who needs a vaccine when you can just wish the virus away by thinking like that? (sighs) Incredible. Nor does the Buddha judge people according to their actions and punish or reward them. When someone suffers from illness in which his unwholesome karma plays a causal role along with other factors, it does not mean that he deserves to suffer or that he made himself sick. Okay, very important. Nor should we ignore those things, those who are injured or oppressed by unjust social structures, thinking that helping them would interfere with their karma. Okay. This is a poor excuse for our lack of compassion. Needless to say, those holding such attitudes create destructive karma themselves. So this paragraph is all about trying to hit on some of the misconceptions people have about karma, okay? Um, So it could be people who grew up with an idea of karma, it could be people who didn't grow up with that idea, but just hear the word karma in the press. Because you know that as soon as Newsweek magazine mentions the word karma, that... (laughs) you know, and it's in popular culture, then you know it's gonna be twisted and deformed in one way or another, okay? So th- this question comes a lot too. I mean, besides from, well, if I don't believe in it, maybe karma won't affect me. People say, I've heard that a lot. Um, I've heard people say, does that mean somebody deserves to suffer, that they're got, they got what's coming to them? That, you know, when you look at somebody who harmed you and you can't retaliate in this life, at least you can rub your hands together and say, but they'll get what's coming to them in the next life. Okay? Kind of like some people do, like, you know, that person harmed me, God will punish them, you know. So, But no, that's not how Buddhists think, that, oh, they deserve to suffer and that, you know, uh, I mean, are rejoicing in somebody else's suffering. That's disgusting, isn't it, to wish somebody to suffer? Okay, so it doesn't mean somebody deserves to, to suffer. It doesn't mean somebody caused the illness or the affliction themselves because... They're a horrible person, you know who did an evil deed. okay doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that um, we should ignore people. I've had oh I've had people ask me that too. Yeah. I have a relative who has this problem, but if I try to help them, isn't it interfering with their karma? You know, and they're thinking that karma means fate and predestination. Yeah, that's the misconception going on there. Yeah, oh, it's, you know, yeah, I'm interfering with their karma. So they did something, I don't know what, but it's now predestined that they suffer. And if I try and help them, I'm interfering with their karma. Yeah, because they need to experience this result to burn off that karma or they need to repay a karmic debt to somebody. Okay, I've heard Buddhists speak about that like a karmic debt to somebody. Yeah, but uh, aside from karmic debts, but for us to not get involved when somebody's suffering saying that I'm interfering with that karma, their karma. I mean, that, again, is ridiculous. When when people ask me this question, I say, okay, let's say uh, you were crossing the street and you got hit by a car and you're lying bleeding in the middle of the intersection and somebody, a pedestrian, is walking by and looks at you bleeding and says, that's really too bad, that's your karma, and walks away. That's what I say when people ask me that question, you know. It's like, ding dong. You know, we have a human responsibility to be kind and help others. We don't just say when somebody's suffering, too bad. Good luck, it's your karma. We do something to help. Yeah. It is important to avoid superimposing concepts from theistic religions on the Buddha Dharma. So that's what's going on in most of these misconceptions, okay? The Buddha is not a creator Karma and its effects are not a system of reward and punishment. It is simply a natural law. Happiness is the result of virtue. Suffering is the result of non-virtue. Nowadays, we may hear the word karma used in a flippant way. For example, when asked, why did my business fail when it seemed to have everything required for success, Someone may dismiss it by replying, "It's karma," meaning I don't know. I remember His Holiness saying this. You know, yeah, it's karma. I don't know. Yeah, that's how you say "I don't know" in in Buddhist language. When when we came to this part in the book, Geshe Drol, ah. Uh, He didn't agree so much with it, meaning, I don't know. I agreed with that because that's how I hear Westerners using karma a lot. It means, I don't know what the cause was. It was karma. But he said in Tibetan society, saying it's karma means it's faded and nothing can be done about it. Okay? So we had two different interpretations of the flippant, it's karma, okay? These are inappropriate usages of the word karma. The principal meaning of karma is volitional action, a physical, verbal, or mental action done with intention, okay? Intention is important here. The Buddha said, it is intention, bhikkhus, that I call karma." For having willed, one acts by body, speech, or mind. Having willed means having an intention. Yeah? And that's what the karma is. It's the intention. Okay? So we'll get into this later on, but there's some tenet schools that say that there's some forms of karma that are, are a form but here, you know, the basic idea is that uh, it's, it always comes down to intention. And some schools say it isn't form, it's just this mental factor, intention. But it always comes down to intention. All karmic paths originate with the mind. So here's from the Dhammapada. This is, I think, it's the, first, the first verses of the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all miserable states. It is mind that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoof of the ox, so suffering will surely follow when we speak or act impulsively from an impure state of mind. Impure state of mind, one with ignorance, anger, greed, resentment, Spite, jealousy, arrogance, and so on. Then the second verse. Mind is the forerunner of all happy states. It is the mind that leads the way. Just as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being will surely follow when we speak or act from a pure state of mind. Okay, so a shadow doesn't just vanish, yeah? When, similarly, when we act with a very uh, good state of mind, uh, one that wishes others well, that with kindness, with love, with compassion, um, yeah, a, a mind that wants to help, okay? Uh, then happiness will come from that. Or a wise mind, a mind that's, you know, investigating... What exists and what doesn't. Not every instance of the mental factor of intention, uh, chetana, is the Sanskrit word and Pali word, uh, creates karma. But every but intention, meaning volition, is always necessary for the creation of karma. Okay, so there's many. Times when there's a mental factor of karma present, a mental factor of intention present, but there's no karma created because the mental factor of intention is one of the five omnipresent mental factors. So even for our sense organs, our, I mean, our sense perceptions, there's the mental factor of intention. That's not going to create karma because there's no, uh, you know, virtuous or non virtuous uh you know mental factors associated with a let's say a visual consciousness perceiving purple okay uh, but whenever we do create karma the the mental uh factor of intention is always an element okay mental factors such as anger attachment and love also play a role in the creation of karma Because when you have one primary mind, you know, with the mental, and this is going to be a primary mental consciousness, and you have a a mental factor of intention, then what will make the action virtue or non-virtue is other mental factors that accompany that primary mind. So it could be anger, it could be love, you know, different things like that. While karma may be physical, verbal, or mental, all actions can be traced back to an intention in our mind. Okay, So here it means actions, meaning karma. It doesn't mean you hit my knee and my leg, you know, reflects, kicks the leg out. That's not talking about karma. Okay, Our body and mouth do not move on their own. They act spurred by an intention in our mind. The mind is the root of all our actions and the source of the happiness and suffering that result from them. When we carefully observe our own experience, we will see how true this is. Okay, so here's some homework. For example, with a particular intention, we adopt a certain behavior in the early part of our life. When some of its effects uh, while some of its effects, may manifest immediately, some may ripen only decades in the future. Likewise, our motivation in the morning sets the stage for what we experience and how we act later in the day. When we're in a bad mood, we meet more obnoxious people. Funny that they all show up that day, and we act rudely. Yeah, isn't it strange how they all come that day? Just when you're in a bad mood and you really need people to be nice to you, and then all these obnoxious ones come along? How dare they? These examples illustrate causality within this life. When we talk about karma and its effects, it primarily concerns causes created in one life bringing results in future lives. Primarily concerns that, but not always, because when we create very powerful karmas, it, the results, karmic results can be experienced in the same life. In both cases, we see that our happiness and suffering are not the effect of an external creator nor are they causeless okay they come about because of our intentions and actions our experience of happiness and suffering is in our own hands that's the important point you know it's up to us okay now when we look back at those three principles of causality from asanga Okay. When we say that happiness and suffering are not the effect of an external creator, which of those three apply to it, to this thing of it not being uh, happiness and suffering not being the thing? What? The The third? Okay, the concordant cause. Okay. Um, Or if you talk about a permanent creator, then what? Hmm? Yeah, then the causes are impermanent and the causes have to cease for the result to happen. Okay, nor are they causeless. Which of the three pertain there? The first one, yeah, okay. An understanding of karma and its effects will have a direct effect on our choices, decisions, and actions in daily life. We will become more conscientious and mindful. Instead of putting energy into overcoming adversaries and competing with rivals, we will choose to cultivate cooperation, tolerance, and forgiveness. Can we put this sign all over Washington, (laughs) D.C.? all over all the state capitals, everywhere. The Buddha has vast knowledge and understanding of the functioning of karma. While we limited sentient beings do not have the capacity to specify the exact interplay of karmic forces and other causes and conditions at work in a specific event, we can gain a general understanding by studying and reflecting on the teachings. This topic is very practical and directly applicable to our lives. So this will be seen as we continue on with this chapter. The Buddha emphasized the importance of understanding karma. So beings are the owners of their karma, heirs of their karma. They originate from their karma are bound to their karma, have kama as their refuge. It is kama that distinguishes beings as inferior and superior. This is um, a passage that comes in the Pali canon repeatedly, you know, how we're the owners of our karma, you know? It's due to our own actions. We can't do something and then... We can blame all the other people we want, but that doesn't mean that the karma is their responsibility. It just means we've created more negative karma by blaming people for uh, our own errors instead of, uh, you know, owning them ourselves. They're heirs of their karma, you know? We're heirs. We will experience, uh, you know, the legacy of what we the causes we've created. Okay? Beings originate from their karma because what is it that throws us into the, determines our next life? Okay? They're bound to their karma. We sure are. You know, you're thrown into a life, into a situation, and you can't wish it away. Have karma as their refuge. In other words, you know, uh, usually we look to refuge to to explain happiness and suffering. And, you know, well, it's karma as our refuge, I think, in the sense that if we take responsibility for our actions, then karma does become our our refuge. Yeah? Because, you know, if you spend your life conscientiously creating virtue, then that virtue, you know, that's been stockpiling in your mind uh, becomes your refuge, your support, you know, at the time of death. It is karma that distinguishes beings as inferior and superior. So it's not money, it's not power. It's not good looks. It's not athletic ability. Okay? It's not any world thing, worldly thing. Yeah? It's, it's our, our conduct, you know, how we are as a human being. With compassion, the Buddha shared his understanding of karma with us By recommending, we abandon certain actions and engage in others. When we put his advice into practice, we become empowered to stop the causes of suffering and create the causes of happiness. So actually, the people who think karma karma means uh, predestination and fate, it actually means we have power to control our experience. It doesn't mean predestination and fate. Yeah, it means that if we want to have certain experiences or certain conditions, then these are the karmic causes to create to bring those about. So we have the power to do that. Yeah? And if we put our energy into creating the karmic causes, It works much better than trying to buy other people off or blame them for
2: our mistakes or any of these other things that we typically do. I've always been quite taken by the cooperative conditions on how karma ripens. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm thinking about your story about your life in that circumstance with the seemingly unimportant decisions do the cooperative conditions need to be at the moment of the ripening of a substantial cause or do they sort of float around i mean i want to understand because part of what i think when we're living here is that we're actually the environment is a cooperative condition for virtue to arise rather than being in bad company I'd like a little yeah. bit more information about how what cooperative conditions are. How big or little, you yeah. know, how do they uh, relate to the karma? Okay. So the karma is the principal cause,
0: okay? Our, our action, that's the principal cause. And it has, you know, karma is definite, virtue, you know, that whole thing, which we'll get into next time. But... Just as a seed needs water and fertilizer and heat, karma needs certain external environments, or internal environments, uh, in order to ripen, okay? So, uh, you know, somebody may have the... Oh, what is it? There's some joke, what is it? somebody's praying to the Buddha 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 please I want to win the lottery I want to win the lottery make me win the lottery and then they hear Buddha saying buy a ticket you idiot in other words you know you have there's a cooperative cause there to winning the lot the lottery you have to have a ticket to win it okay if you win the lottery there's a principal cause which would probably be grand generosity from a previous life but you need to get a ticket otherwise you're not going to win
2: so if if you really want the virtuous karma to move into the forefront it's got to be you've you've got to really choose to live in environments surround yourself with circumstances that that will support that ripening of that virtue and keep purifying the negative karma rather than doing the opposite. Right, right. I mean, where
0: we live and who we We hang out with are very powerful cooperative conditions that can either make certain karma uh, ripen or impede it from ripening, okay? Now, having said that, you know, we can see our own experience living here. It's an incredible cooperative condition for us to create more virtue. Uh, but also, it's it's a good condition for the ripening of previous virtue because we get to receive teachings, we just had a retreat, you know, we have food, we have you know, such a beautiful place to live, and so on, okay? So there's cooperative conditions that are doing that. Yeah. At the same time, though, you know, we shouldn't think that just because I'm living a virtuous life now, I should never suffer, that only positive karma should ripen. Don't think that, because that's not right, because previously created harmful karma can also ripen even when we're mostly trying to do
2: virtuous things okay and then the the very deeply ingrained habitual mental habits that we have that we try to transform are also things that would have been considered cooperative conditions as well to set up ourselves by making yeah lousy decisions but the habits to, be, to break those and dismantle those also as part of removing not helpful cooperative conditions for right things to happen. Right. well it, it's like
0: okay if if you go to a party and get drunk and get in a car to drive home you're kind of setting yourself up for some negative karma to ripen aren't you? Just because of the external situation. So if you have that negative karma to ripen, you've set up the perfect external situation for it to ripen in. If you don't have the karma for that to ripen at that moment, you know, then you can, you know, you can drive and maybe you make it home. Okay? Uh... So what we're doing now, our motivations and so forth, now make a, can make a big difference.
2: I'm just uh, been incredibly fascinated by all the, the, that story that you told of, of your friend, Teresa. I never forget that. She has such a virtuous intention, but the cooperative condition, she went off some, I mean. Well, she had a virtuous intention to go to Nepal for Dharma
0: teachings, But when she got to Bangkok and went to a party and met a guy, I think there was probably some attachment going on there. And some, you know, well, I'm going to the monastery to do virtue, but I also want to have a good time on the way there. And, you know, somebody asked me out for lunch, and we'll have a nice lunch, and he looks like a nice guy. And, yeah, what's wrong with that? So you know the you know that intention may not have been
2: virtue. that was a totally different intention, you know it sort of overruled <laughs> it got in the way it became it overpowered the her her flight plan her 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 virtuous plan yeah it way. it
0: was one of those karmas, what do they call it um mm, you know, there was some karma that ripened there that, you know, caused her never to make it to Copan. But what caused that, you know, that whole situation where she got murdered, you know? I mean, there were so many different factors going on there, you know? But one of them, one of them was her intention. But one of them was, you know, this guy, and whoever would have expected that he was a serial murderer from Europe, you know? But it kind of ripened, and then boom, there, there it was.
1: Someone asks, there's quite a few questions, um, can sentient beings have karmic imprints on DNA, which can then be carried on to the future physical bodies? What was the... What the can sentient beings leave karmic imprints on DNA? On DNA? Be, no. Yeah.
0: No, your karmic print imprints are not, uh, are not material.
1: Yeah. And then uh, Fosa Singapore asks, uh, how do we decide when we should talk about karma to non Buddhists?
0: It's better in the context of inviting them to a Dharma teaching where they know they're going to be hearing new ideas that they haven't heard before and where they can hear those ideas uh, in a group. Yeah, without you as a friend telling them directly where they're in a position where they're going to have to respond uh, immediately. You know, so either invite them to a teaching, give them, you know, give them a Dharma book that happens to talk about karma, let them read it on their own so they can think about it on
1: their own. Someone else asks if a child is born into an abusive home, Is that the karma of the child or the karma of the parent?
0: It's both. Yeah. Yeah. And the parent, Mm -hmm. you know, who's doing the abuse is also creating a lot of karma.
1: Yeah. Uh, Someone else asks, Is it correct to say that we don't create our own suffering, but we do create the causes unintentionally?
0: We don't create our own suffering. We create the causes for our own suffering. I think this might To be- say unintentionally? we Some of it we do very intentionally. I'm mad at that person and I am going to slam him behind his back to the co-workers. We, we, we're very intentional about it sometimes. <sighs> yeah. But... As Lama would say, they means well, dear. So when we don't know about karma, we may mean well. We may think what we're doing is good. But our thinking something is virtuous does not make it virtuous. Our thinking we will not get CV19 will not protect us from getting the disease. Yeah. Untimely karma, that's it. Untimely. Un, no, but it's, unti- it's untimely karma. Yeah? So because it caused in an untimely event, okay? It ripened in that kind of way. Okay, an event which normally wouldn't have happened. This will be the
1: last question. This is a follow-up in response, I'm um, saying that, but we don't make our, ourselves sick. Um, but we create the causes to get sick, so that's what the person was trying to get at about yeah. not creating. A, we don't create our own suffering, but we create the causes for it.
0: Well, what, what's the pur- what is the purpose in this wordplay? What is what but, are they trying to get at?
1: Because we were talking about how we don't make ourselves sick, even though we've created the karma that causes us to get sick. Yes. So based on that distinction, then wouldn't you then say that then we don't create the causes? Then we don't create our own suffering. Because we were saying we don't. So what? What? But what? What is the purpose
0: in rewording it that way? That's what I'm trying to get at. That's what I don't understand. Yeah. Because it sounds like the person understood the principle very well. So I don't understand the play with the words. Does anybody? Can explain this to me? I was just making a guess that when most of the time. We're just ignorant. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know that it's going to be yeah. a, a suffering result. So people don't intentionally go into an action thinking, "I'm going to make myself suffer." They're they're doing an action for other reasons, but yeah. they don't realize suffering will come. come. Later. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. One more. Okay. <laughs> In politics, if we vote a political party that turns out to create suffering, are we creating group negative karma by voting in that way? Because we didn't intend to harm people when we voted them. Yeah.
0: Depending on the actions those people do, if you rejoice in those actions, you create the same karma as they do doing it. if you don't rejoice in them, you don't create that karma. Yeah. So... You know, yeah. But if you rejoice when a politician's doing an action, uh, it doesn't matter whether you voted for them or not, uh, but you'll accumulate, you know, similar karma for whether they do virtue or non-virtue. So if who you voted for is creating non-virtue, don't vote for them next time. You know, uh, the Tibetans had a, a very strong feeling. I'm not saying whether I agree with it or not, but they say it's better to have somebody who, cre- a, a practitioner of virtue, have political power because they will make better decisions and they will be kinder. So I don't think that it there's no pervasion there. Okay? Very sad for Yeah. But again, it comes from ignorance, doesn't it? And you don't have to be in that kind of position of power to create negative karma. Yeah. We're very creative in in how we do it, you know. Okay. So let's all, always remember, now that we're coming to talk about karma, that karma is an extremely hidden topic. Okay, that means only the Buddha is going to know the answers to all of your questions. So that is my excuse. (laughs) Yeah, but it's a true excuse. Uh, So I'll do my best, but I won't be able to satisfy everybody.